This is an IG paid post. The news and editorial staff of the Financial Times had no role in its preparation. Hello and welcome to IG's Decoding the Markets. I'm Victoria Scholar and with me on the pod today is Ed Morse, Global Head of Commodities Research at Citigroup and Josh Mahoney, who's a market analyst at IG. And they're both here to talk about the commodities market. Ed, let's start with you. Now, we've seen the price of oil make significant headway this year, but you said in the summer that the bull argument could be based on faulty analysis. Is that still your view? Uh, it's my view for the medium term, that is to say through next year. There's a short-term problem in the fall of uh, of this year. The short-term problem has to do with all of the disruption risks that are in the market from uh, Iran to Venezuela to Libya to Nigeria and, yeah, and even Iraq. So I would not be surprised if this gave way, way to a price spike in uh, the fall or winter. But uh, I think we're just seeing an awful lot of American oil and uh, Canadian oil and Brazilian oil coming into the market uh, at a greater pace than we see demand growth. So we see a weaker market by the time we get to mid-year next year. I wouldn't be surprised if oil prices fell by $20 by then. Let's talk about supply a bit more because it feels like it used to be all about OPEC and non-OPEC and that deal to curb production. But now it's a lot more about the US, whether we're talking about its foreign policy or indeed the fact that it's now become the largest incremental supplier to the world markets. Yeah, we're used to thinking about the world in terms of call on OPEC, and now we have to think about the call on U.S. shale. So it's a, it's very different. It's uh, a short response kind of oil and, and natural gas, uh, very responsive to where the oil price goes. And we've seen uh, this beginning, the beginning of the OPEC uh, plus agreement with Russia and other countries is all about inventory builds that are the direct result of the amount of oil coming out of unconventional supply, deep water, Brazil and the U.S. and West Africa, oil sands in Canada, and of course, shale being the biggest in the U.S. Yeah, I think it's interesting because, of course, we've seen Donald Trump talking not so long ago about the fact that he didn't necessarily see a very high price of oil as being beneficial. Of course, he cares most about uh, economic growth. So I think, you know, the, the fear is, and certainly with Saudi, we've seen it in the past, that if they were to essentially cut back on output within OPEC, then are we always going to see the U.S. always step in and manage to raise that production and, and, in essence, trying to cap upside in terms of oil prices? So I think you alluded to it earlier. You know, if we do start seeing moves towards, let's say, 100, people always want to look at that as a marker. It always feels like it's going to be a temporary move rather than something that's going to be long term because a lot of those kind of spikes do come from geopolitical events that can be very uh, short term in nature. Well, let's talk a bit about the demand side, because we've recently seen OPEC cut its demand forecast for next year. And of course, there are worries about the slowdown in China. But we are operating amid a backdrop of relatively strong global growth. So perhaps you have some more insights into the demand side of the picture. Well, the demand side looked pretty strong last winter, the fourth quarter of last year, the first quarter of this year. We had synchronous growth in emerging markets and in advanced economies. If you ran a six-month moving average through last winter, uh, oil demand was above 2 million barrels a day. But now we're seeing uh, desynchronization of growth, a lot of uh, problems on the economic horizon, uh, which leads to almost inevitably lower growth in the U.S. Uh, by 2020 and with that in the rest of the world. And of course, the big 
the big uh, issue on the demand side is China and the Chinese economy. Uh, and even a 1% drop in Chinese GDP has ripple effects that could lead to a substantial drop in global GDP. So you're talking about China there. I think that segues quite nicely into my next question, which is about copper. That touched a four-year high in June. And then we saw the price kind of come back down quite rapidly, actually. So do you think we could be coming towards the end of that bear market? Yeah, I, th- I think it's an interesting one. Everyone always looks towards copper as a sort of bellwether of how we're doing in terms of the world economy and development. Of course, one of the big things that underlies that is the growth of China. And of course, when we're seeing the US and China sort of butting heads, it's always going to dent it. I guess to an extent, we're sort of seeing this deterioration in terms of some of the base metals and the lights of copper, um, almost giving us with the potential uh, for some sort of long-term bullish outlook. It's almost given us what I think is going to be a temporary pullback because of the fact that you know I don't see the US-China uh, issues being a long-standing thing. At some point, I think there'll be some sort of resolution. I think that should be bullish for the lights of copper. Ed, do you echo those views around trade? I actually perfectly echo those views. We've seen not just in copper, but uh, in other industrial metals and across agriculture, the the impact of uh, the trade dispute between the U.S. and China and Chinese restrictions. So it's it's sort of like we're living in uh, an either-or world with both the agricultural products and uh, and most metals, aluminum being, you know, a bit of uh, of a sidebar because it's responding to U.S. sanctions on Russia more than other things. But yeah. if things get back to normal, uh, we're very bullish industrial metals, particularly copper. So do you think the trade wars are going to get back to normal as we head into 2019? Uh, I don't know whether it's heading back into 2019. I think to some degree, trade tensions are now a permanent feature of the global landscape. But uh, uh, the brunt of it, which is uh, now uh, seeing you know very significant tariffs being imposed on China, that could evaporate overnight. It could uh, uh, take several months. That's the timing of the change when the diminution of the trade tensions turns you bullish uh, base metals and particularly copper. We don't know what the timing is going to be. Now, I think one commodity that perhaps hasn't uh, moved in price in the way that you might expect amid these trade tensions and risk-off sentiment has been gold and other precious metals. We've really been seeing the shine come off those. What do you make of the declines? Did it come as a surprise to you? I think the interesting thing about gold is that you know it's not necessarily something you know beyond the high demand that we see over in in India at times. It's not necessarily something that has a, a great amount of use. That's why people often turn to the likes of silver because of its its applications in the likes of medicine uh, and the like. I think the interesting thing is that you're pricing gold in U.S. dollars, and U.S. dollars now all of a sudden seems to be that safe haven play. So we're almost seeing a battle between the two perceived safe havens. The moment people seem to be looking more towards the U.S. dollar, so it's a bit of a bit of a threat to gold, and and, and really trying to understand exactly where its place is in the world at the moment. Now, Ed, I wanted to get your take on trading strategy around commodities because it seems like there's a shift, more of a look towards these risk premium strategies rather than these price pure plays. So people are looking to trade volatility, they're looking to trade momentum. Is that what you're seeing? Of course, that's the big change is a move to these other other kinds of uh, of signals. Uh, but I'd say there, there are two other things that are going on. One is uh, we're seeing a lot of relative value trades. Uh, one uh, one commodity versus another commodity, uh, silver gold being one of them, uh, which people get wrong or right depending on how uh, they view it. Uh, with the uh, uh, with the tailing off of uh, gold prices, 
that we've seen, you'd expect that silver would go up, and it's not. The spread has actually gone in the other direction. So the relative value trades are there. They, uh, they're, in, in some respects, more difficult than the volatility trades. Uh, the other kinds of trades that are, we're seeing are look at uh, a different kind of relative value, so uh, time spreads, for example. You saw Brent go off last summer when the market moved into Contango. Uh, looking at a uh, 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 looking at buying Brent into the future, selling it short and buying long, was a an active trade in July and August. You also look at the WTI and Brent spread, and uh, WTI is kind of caught up in the uh, in the obstacles to export out of the Permian Basin, let alone out of the U.S. So when you see that, the anticipation is that WTI priced in the mid-continent of the U.S. in Cushing, Oklahoma, against Brent priced uh, uh, on a seaborne market, should see that a price exploding. And that has been a, a relative value trade that a lot of investors have been looking at. All right. Thanks so much. That's all we've got time for. Thank you for listening to IG's Decoding the Markets. I'm Victoria Scholar. Thanks so much to my guests, Ed Morse, Head of Commodities Research at Citigroup, and Josh Mahoney, Market Analyst at IG. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.